chapter and verse by verse. But this morning, we got Matthew chapter 25, if you'll turn there. And let's begin to look at that. We are in this section of Matthew that is called the Olivet Discourse that began in chapter 24. And Jesus continuing to talk to his disciples about his return as this teaching of Jesus to his disciples concerning the signs of his coming in the end of the age. And as we know from Mark's account of the Olivet Discourse, it was the two sets of brothers. It was Peter and Andrew and James and John that came to Jesus and asked them privately about these things. So Jesus has been talking to them about the birth pangs, the, the beginning of sorrows that will culminate in that period of time that is called the tribulation period. And as he talks to them about that, I'm sure that at this point as we move into chapter 25, I just imagine that the other disciples have now joined in to listen to Jesus as he's going to tell a parable concerning his return. So, Father, we ask this morning that you would just bless this time in the teaching of your word. We thank you that we can be here. Just as the early church, they continue steadfastly in the word of God and in prayer and fellowship and breaking of bread. We continue those things as well. And Lord, take your word and stir our hearts with it. And Lord, there's something here for us to take away, to Lord, to be encouraged and built up, and Lord, to make priority. And that is to be looking and watching and discerning of the days in which we are in. So we give you this time in the study of your word. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So as we talk about... The, this teaching called the Olivet Discourses. We've been reading in chapter 24 that Jesus talked about what is called the birth pangs. And, and we know that he would also mention that in the middle of that seven-year period called the tribulation period, halfway through that he spoke of an event that will take place, the abomination of desolation, spoken of Daniel the prophet. And when that happens, he says that there will be great tribulation. The Bible speaks that it is a time of Jacob's trouble. And it's a time of trouble such as the world has never seen before or ever will again. There will be great cataclysmic signs in heaven, uh, wrath being poured out on a Christ-rejected world. And Jesus ended the chapter, as we read last week, by commanding us. It's a present imperative. Listen, it's not a suggestion that, number one, that we are to be watching. Sometimes there are others that will say, what do you mean watching for the Lord? And they think that what it means is that we get up on the roof of the church and put on a white robe and we're staring up into the sky. What it means is, is that we are watching, we are sober, we are vigilant, we are discerning of the days in which we are in. And then second of all, what we are to be doing is that we are to be faithful. Continue to live for the Lord and don't get you know, distracted by the world. Don't get pulled into the world. And we are to occupy till he comes and listen. We are here for such a time as this. And he has something for you to do, for you to be salt and light, to be one that is a witness in, in the reality of Jesus Christ. And this church, he has something for us to do. So we are to be watching, we're to be waiting, we're to be faithful. And as we continue this theme of being ready and being wise, we move into chapter 25. Jesus tells them a parable. Let's begin to look at that as we read in verse 1. 
Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. And then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. In verse 8, And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Verse 13, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. So Jesus, talking and teaching truth concerning his return, puts it now in the form of a parable. Keep in mind that Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He's not speaking to a multitude of people. And in this theme of watching and being prepared into, in regards to his return in the previous chapter, remember that he used Noah as, as an example. That is, in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man, that they ate and they drank and they were given to, to marriage. There was the daily routines that were going on until Noah went into the ark. The Lord closed the ark, and then judgment came and took them all away. He, in Luke's narrative, would also use Lot as an example in concerning his coming, as the coming of the Son of Man is like in the days of Lot, when he was in Sodom. And judgment came upon Sodom and Gomorrah. When the angel came and told Lot and his family, you need to get out because judgment is going to come, they lingered. They, they weren't ready. They didn't think that judgment was going to come to them. But as we go through the scriptures, this point is made over and over again as he uses those examples, those two Old Testament examples. He uses the thief in the night as an example. He used the householder as an example. And now he takes the wedding ceremony that they knew very well and he lays it alongside of the truth of his coming. A parable. That's what para means. To come alongside of. And it is a story that they could understand to come alongside of a truth concerning to be ready for his return. Now I will say this. That this parable that we just read, the parable of the wise and the foolish maidens or virgins, that this parable has been interpreted to death over the last 2,000 years. And there are those who are very adamant about this as speaking to Israel only. And then when we get to the judgment of the nations as speaking to the Gentile uh, you know, nations and, and individuals. And, and I can see w what they're speaking of. And that's fine. But here's the thing. As we go through a lot of parables, and a lot of parables can have different interpretations and different thoughts, 
Keep in mind that there's always an emphasis of that parable. And keep in mind that there is an emphasis of this parable, and it is what? We know it to be, watch, therefore, for you know neither the day or the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. That is the central theme of this parable. So the, to understand this, they, they have a story here of the wedding ceremony. They would know about the ancient wedding ceremony in Israel, what he is speaking about in this story. Now, in ancient Israel, as a lot of you know, because we've talked about it before, that usually marriages were arranged. Uh, parents would get together, and they would arrange an engagement between two of their children. And that could take place at a very young age, when they're five, six years old. And in some parts of the world, that's still the case, where marriages are arranged, not in, in Israel, but in, in some other parts of the world. Now, you who are young, who are single, uh, you might be thinking, well, that's terrible. And I'm glad that I got, you know, a chance to pick, <laughs> that I was able to choose. Um, there are some days being a father, I think, well, maybe this isn't such a bad idea, so, <laughs> of arranging. You know how that is, parents. But marriages were arranged in those days. And, and during that time, a dowry would be agreed upon. And then they would come as they grew older, when they became a teenager, 16, 17 years old, they would come to the second phase of uh, their, their wedding or becoming husband and wife. And it was called the espousal period. And the espousal period, they were legally husband and wife, but they did not consummate the marriage. They did not live together. That was the period that Joseph and Mary were in when, as we're going to read at Christmas time here in just a couple months, that the angel came to Joseph and said, Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. And you remember earlier in Matthew's gospel in chapter 1 that Joseph was looking to put her away, Mary, secretly. Uh, he knew that she was with child, and he was going to give a certificate of divorce because even in the espousal period, that if you wanted to get out of that, then you had to give a certificate of divorce. And so the angel says, Joseph, don't be afraid, because that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she is going to bring forth a son, and she'll call his name Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. So they were in that espousal period, as even to as they would go to Bethlehem, Luke chapter 2, the Christmas story, when the, the emperor would give that order and give that decree that all the people are to go back to their homeland, to their ancestry, where you know, their ancestors were from. And, of course, Joseph was from the house and lineage of David. He had to travel there to Bethlehem with his spouse wife as they were betrothed to each other. But they did not know each other before that. So it's more like the engagement period that we're accustomed to today. And during that time is what would happen in the espousal period, just like it is today. When you get engaged today, you have to start preparing for when you become husband and wife. You have to start thinking about where you're going to live and how you're going to support, you know, your wife or, you know, how you got the finances, all these things and preparations that need to be in place. And it was the same during that year-long espousal period. That's about how long it would be. 
Well, then would come the third and final phase, and that is the actual wedding ceremony. And what would happen during the wedding ceremony is before the wedding, we give invitations, don't we? And when we give an invitation to a wedding, that we say, here's the day and here's the time of the wedding. Well, it wasn't that way in ancient Israel. They would give an invitation. They didn't give a time. Now, I read one source that said they would give the day, but there are others who say they didn't even give the day, nor the hour. They knew it was coming soon. They knew it could be at any time, but the invitations would go out that you be ready because the bridegroom is going to come and get his bride. And as the Jewish day begins at sundown, here are these maidens that come, they bring their lamps. Now, here it is getting dark, and I wonder if there's an object lesson that is here. And what I mean by that, in the parable of the sower that Jesus talked about, that a sower went out to sow seed on the ground that most of the people, they could understand that story. They had seen as, as Israel was an agricultural area, particularly as he would tell that parable up in the Galilee region, very fertile wheat fields. Uh, they could picture a sow, sower going out and sowing seeds on, on the ground. Uh, we know that he would tell the parable in the Sermon on the Mount, or he would talk about, that is, uh, as people were listening to him, about the flowers, how Solomon and all his, his splendor wasn't arrayed as much as one of these flowers. It was springtime when he was given the Sermon on the Mount. So the hillsides there in Galilee, above the Sea of, of Galilee, there in that area where Jesus gave that sermon, we've been there in the springtime, and we've sat out on the hills. We've read the Sermon on the Mount. And, and to, to see the flowers all over the hillsides, it was absolutely incredible, really brought the scriptures alive. He would talk about that God will provide for you. Look at the birds. They don't worry about tomorrow. And the birds would be flying around. So here, they're on the Mount of Olives. Remember, it is Passover that the city is packed out. And people, not only are they in the city staying at people's homes, but they also would be camped out on the hillsides as Jerusalem is in the hills. There's hills all around, and they would overlook Jerusalem. They would overlook those hills, and I'm sure that they could see the lights, all the lamps that were burning in the homes. Uh, there's the people who were staying on the hillsides as they were camping out. So with the wedding ceremony coming near, what would take place in that final process of being married is the bridemaids would come to the bride's home. There would be 10 of them. It's kind of a sacred number among the Jews. There had, to be, there had to be 10 male Jewish men in a village to have a synagogue. There, there was to be 10 in a family to celebrate the Passover. A, a sacrificial lamb would provide for 10. There would be 10 maidens at a wedding. And, and they as well as the bride would be waiting for the bridegroom to come and receive his bride. And when the bridegroom came... And an hour they did not know, he would come with the groomsmen, and they would blow the trumpet. It was very celebratory. They blew the trumpet, and the shot would go out. Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go out to meet him. Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go out to meet him. Now, we got a little picture of this. In one of our trips to Israel, we were staying at, um, at a kibbutz at the edge of Jerusalem that actually overlooked Bethlehem. And it was called the uh, Rochelle Ramat. It was named after Rachel, whose tomb is in 
Bethlehem, of course, Rachel being the wife of Jacob. But it was a beautiful place. It was a, a huge garden area, and then they had a cherry orchard, and they did a lot of weddings there. Uh, a lot of people in Jerusalem got married there. So one of our trips, when we were unloading everything in the bus you know, that we're on, it has Calvary Chapel Greeley in the front window, and we went in to start checking in our luggage and everything, getting our rooms, because we were going to stay there for a number of days, touring Jerusalem and the surrounding area. But there was an elderly man that was there, and he was probably in his upper 80s, and he said, you guys are from Greeley, Colorado? And I said, yes. He said, I went to school in Greeley. And he went to, when it was not called UNC, it was called Colorado State College, uh, back in there. So his granddaughter was getting married and he invited us to the wedding. And what we did is a, a few of us, we were really respectful. We kind of just held back and it was interesting. We get a little picture of this. Again, this is ancient Israel that we're talking about. But in that wedding ceremony, um, it was uh, the bridesmaid, uh, the bride and the bridesmaid that were in one area of the garden. Then clear on the other side, there was the, the groom and the groomsmen. They were over there. And again, very celebratory. They're, they're dancing. They're celebrating. They're, you know, tambourines and all of this. Same with the, the ladies, with the bride. And then eventually the trumpet would blow and the, the groomsmen and, and the groom would come and as they would dance and they would go to get the bride. And then they would get her and bring her back and then was the wedding ceremony. So that's the Jewish wedding ceremony today. But back at this time, they would come and they would then go to the groom's house. They had this ceremony. They went to the groom's house and it was there. The groom, you know, would usually add on to maybe perhaps his parents' house. You see that in many parts of the world today. You particularly see that with Arab villages. As you go through Israel, you see a home, and then you see, you know, another level that they're building. Well, a son is getting married, so they're expanding the house. So that is done in many parts of the world today. So he, again, you know, would be preparing for a place take his bride back to his house, their house, and, and then they would have that wedding ceremony. Uh, after that, they'd have a celebration for seven days. And I love the picture of that because it reminds me of Jesus that says, I go and prepare a place for you in my Father's house. And he has prepared a place for his bride and I will come and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And that's good news for us this morning, isn't it? Because maybe you're here this morning, and you're discouraged, and you're down, and you're wondering. But I want to remind you once again that you who are a believer, that you are the bride of Christ. And the promise is he's going to come and receive you to himself and he's going to take you out of this world. I can't wait till we go home to be with him. And just as the groom would take his bride to his place, their place, they would then consummate the marriage, and there would be the wedding feast that lasted, as I said already, for seven days. I read one source where the bride was actually, would be tucked away uh, for the seven days, and at the end of the seven days, then she was presented to the guests as the bride. 
He's going to take us and hide us for seven years. And then we're going to come forth with him in the second coming of Jesus Christ at the end of the tribulation period. And as I was considering this, I I was thinking about the book of Isaiah in chapter 26. I'm going to read it to you in verses 20 and 21. But as we read it, Isaiah is declaring this. The Lord is, through Isaiah, Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut the doors behind you. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation is past. For behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth, For their iniquity, the earth will also disclose her blood and will no more cover her slain. So there are many scholars and and commentators that say it's speaking of the judgment of Assyria against the house of Israel. But I like to think that it speaks of the rapture of the church because come my people, enter your chambers, shut the door behind you, hide yourself as it were for a little moment until the indignation is past. The Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth, not just of Israel. To punish the inhabitants of the earth, and the earth will also disclose her blood. So I like to think that it gives us a picture, and I appreciate the pictures. I love the pictures that we have. And Jesus telling this this parable, the wedding ceremony, and we get those pictures as we look at Scripture. I go and prepare a place for you. I say that I will, you know, come for you and, and come into the chambers and hide the doors, you know, or shut the doors, hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment. And then we are going to be presented as the bride of Christ at the end of this seven years. So what is essential to us here this morning as we read this parable, again in verse 13, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. He said that in in verse 42, didn't he, as we saw last week? We can go back to verse 36 of chapter 24, but the day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven. In verse 42, watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. We read in verse 44, therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour that you do not expect. And Jesus making the same point over and over again in the same sermon gives us understanding of what is a priority, what is imperative, what is important for you and for me today. And if he is telling us repeatedly to watch and be ready for a come in an hour you do not know, that that is the thrust of his message and in giving this parable that we are to take heed to that. And don't move away from that. One thing I will not do is let anyone take me away from the Lord delays his coming. They Be ready because he comes at a time that we do not expect. It's told to us repeatedly throughout the entire New Testament to be ready, to be sober, to be vigilant, to be watching. Don't be overtaken. Don't, you know, uh, these examples of a thief in the night, all these things. And it's important for us to take heed to those. So here are ten virgins that took their lamps. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. And those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. So there's a contrast that is here between the wise and the foolish. And the wise had oil for their lamps, the foolish did not. You know, Psalm 109, uh, 119, that is verse 105 Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So what good is a lamp without the oil? 
when I was young, a long time ago, that a friend of mine, we used to go night fishing at a lake. When, when spring came and the rainbows were spawning, we would go night fishing. And that was before today when you have a lantern or you have a cook stove, you get those propane tanks, you can just screw it on real easy and just flip the switch. It's really neat. They didn't have that back in those days. You had to actually use oil and kind of pump the, the lantern. And maybe some of you might still have some of those. I do. <laughs> and, um, but he would always forget oil. And we go night fishing, and he'd say, oh, I forgot oil. I need to use yours. Do you got any? And all the time, he would forget his oil. One time I got frustrated and said, no, you can't have any. <laughs> and then I felt bad because he ran out of light about 2 in the morning. So we know that oil throughout the Old Testament is a picture of the Holy Spirit. A king, a priest, a prophet would be anointed with oil for their ministry, which is a picture of the Holy Spirit coming upon their life to empower them to do the work of the ministry. In Zechariah chapter 4, we have the picture of the two olive trees and the oil flowing to the lamps. Hey, it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And so here is the contrast. Five had oil. Five did not have oil. I've heard testimony even this morning, some that have come through the morning services, that you said, you know, I remember being in church, but I wasn't saved. I thought I was okay because I went to church, or it wasn't until later, sometimes months or years later, that I realized that I needed to make a decision for Jesus Christ, that I needed to repent, turn to him, ask for forgiveness. How many of you, you know someone, and I'm sure that most of you, if not all of you, you know somebody that they think that they're saved because they're a good person. They're a moral person. Oh, I believe in God. I believe on the Sermon on the Mount. I, I believe those things. But they haven't made a decision for Jesus Christ. They haven't come and recognized their need to be forgiven because they are a sinner. And you see, there are those that, you know, have that, 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 that concept, that mindset that I'm a Christian because I'm a good person or I belong to the church or my parents are Christians. But they have not been born again by the Spirit of God. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, Now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And we know that Jesus would make these contrasts in the parables that he gave. Remember chapter 13 in the kingdom parables? In the parable of the wheat and the tares, let the wheat and the tares grow together until the harvest. And at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. The parable of the dragnet, they gathered some of every kind of fish, they gathered the good into the vessels and threw the bad away. And I believe that there's an important contrast that we see even in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Not to be redundant to you, but it's important for us to recognize these contrasts as Paul's talking about the day of the Lord. And as he talked about the rapture of the church, he said, we who are alive and remain are going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. But concerning the days of the Lord, when the tribulation period starts, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night, when they say peace and safety, sudden destruction comes upon them. But you, brethren, you're not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. For you are sons of the light and sons of the day. 
We're not of the night or of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate, uh, the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of hope and salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So you see these contrasts, even concerning his coming in the day of the Lord. Throughout the scripture, we are told about the saved, the unsaved, the wise, the foolish, the good, the evil, the night and the day, those who are sleeping. He's telling us, don't go to sleep spiritually versus those who are watching. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. Now again, it's not telling us here that it's bad to sleep at night. I need my sleep, all right? So they, they slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming out to meet him. And then all the virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. And afterwards the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, As surely I say to you, I do not know you. Now this parable is not teaching us that the wise maidens were being selfish and didn't share their oil and weren't very nice. That's what I did with my friend, you know, when we went night fishing. The parable is not speaking of that. I think we know that to be true. But what is interesting is, is that we can't give you our oil. Listen, there's an important principle here. I can't give people oil. In other words, one of the things that I have learned over the years of ministry and over the years of walking with the Lord is I make a lousy Holy Spirit. I can give people truth. I am to give them the gospel. I am to give them light. I am to love them. But it is only the Holy Spirit that can truly draw a person to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. To convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. As parents, again, we, we are to raise our children in the ways of the Lord, in the admonition of the Lord. It's getting harder to do that in the days in which we are in. But we're called to, to give them the word of God. And for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And our homes are to be a sanctuary. Our homes are to be a place where the truth of God is spoken and where the hymns of God and the praises of God are sung. And our homes are to be that place. But here's the thing. You've heard the, the saying that God doesn't have grandchildren. We raise them in the ways of the Lord, washing them with the water of the word. We are to give them a godly inheritance, but there comes a time when they get older that they have to make that decision themselves. They have to come to a realization that I need to make my faith real and come to him. A church cannot save you. Some people think that they're saved because they went into church or belong to the membership roles of a church. Calvary Chapel can't save anyone. Pastor Jeff cannot save anyone. We are committed to giving the word of God. And again, especially in the day in which we're in, because Paul would write that it's going to be perilous times in the last days. We are seeing that. Things are happening quickly. 
Well, evil men, evil men and imposters are growing worse and worse. Corrupt minds and counterfeits that are out there. Those who have a form of godliness but denying its powers. Persecution coming more against Christians. We are seeing the very things that Paul is writing about. And what does he tell us? That you must continue in the scriptures. And that's why I'm committed to giving you the word of God. I'm committed for us to continue to go through the scriptures to make us wise in the days in which we are living in. So we don't have to be deceived. We don't have to give in to darkness or to evil. And we can be established in truth. And it was the prophet Isaiah that would say to Ahaz the king, listen, believe the word of the Lord or you will not be established. And if we do not continue to grow in God's word, especially in the day in which we are living in, you will not be established, that is, in truth and in light. You will not be established in your faith, but you're going to see the world's going to come and begin to, to toss you around to and fro. And James speaks about that when he writes his epistle. So we're going to give you the truth of God's word. We're going to love you the best that we can. But I cannot give salvation. We'll give an invitation for you to come to salvation, even as we will do this morning. But every individual has to make a decision to whether they come to faith in the gospel, which has the power to save, to come to the cross, to ask for forgiveness, and to call upon the Lord as your personal Lord and Savior. No one can do that for you. So the oil is something only he can give. And the door was shut. Isn't that sobering? In John's gospel, in the great I am statements throughout John's gospel, Jesus declared, I am the door. He did not say he was a door. I am the door singularly. It reminds me of Noah's ark as the Lord shut the door and the unbelieving world was left outside. Isaiah is saying, come my people, enter your chambers and shut the doors behind you. Hide yourself as it were. And I love this in verse 10. They went in with him. Revelation chapter 19, verse 7. You might mark it down in your margins. That, that chapter that speaks of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife had made herself ready and to her it was granted to be arraigned in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. What a wonderful future as we have before us, uh, our hope before us. It's so glorious to be gathered with him, the reunions that we will have with our loved ones, the saints that went on before us. Those who were ready went in with him. The door was shut, but the others, the foolish ones with no oil, they came and said, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, I do not know you. Now that might ring a bell with some of you. And that is at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. That Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we cast out demons in your name? Did wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, this is the words of Jesus, that depart from me, I never knew you. That's the key. They didn't have personal relationship with the Lord. Listen, this is not only for the coming of the Lord. It is for us. He's going to come for us, the church. But he may come for us at any time individually because tomorrow isn't promised to any of us.
This week, I will be doing two memorial services for dear saints that have gone home to be with the Lord. Saints that have come here and, and yet they would breathe their last, they would close their eyes to be with a dear sister this week hours before she went home to be with the Lord is very sobering. Tomorrow isn't promised to any of us. We are to watch for his return. I believe that he can come for the church at any time, but he can come for us individually as well. And that's why the Bible says that today is the day of salvation. You know what one of the tactics of the enemy is? One of the tactics is you don't need to be watching. Live your life. Do what you want to do. You have plenty of time to, to get serious about Jesus or come to Jesus. You see, his tactic is not always there is no God or there is no heaven, but oftentimes there's no hurry. There's no hurry for you to make a decision for the gospel for Jesus. Man, you're young. Live for yourself. And I'm not saying that we can't live life where we have goals and we, we want to move forward in things, but the enemy is very, very good. You know, you don't need this Jesus thing. You got plenty of time. You know, live for yourself. You don't need to come to the gospel. Or for those of us who are Christians, you know, you don't need to really live for Jesus. You got things that you need to do. You got business that you need to grow. You got jobs. You got careers. You got all these other things. And again, Jesus would warn us in, in that account in Luke's gospel that he said, listen, don't get weighed down with the cares of life because we all got cares of life. We go to school. We got jobs. We got careers. Of course we do. We got things that we enjoy doing, but don't get weighed down with it. Oh, you know what? You're going to find, the world comes along and says, true satisfaction and fulfillment if you live for yourself. If you live for yourself. And the Bible says you live for Him every day. Make Him the priority of every area of your life. And you know what you'll find? You'll find peace, true satisfaction and fulfillment, and great joy. You know, the church does silly things today. Run through the joy tunnel. David wrote 3,000 years ago, in your presence is fullness of joy. That Jesus is going to say to these same disciples the next night as he's with them for the last time before his crucifixion, that you abide in me, and as you abide in me, your joy is going to be full. You don't have to run through a joy tunnel but you spend time with him and you walk with him. You enjoy him. You get to know him. Don't be like the foolish one who said, I'm just going to build bigger barns and eat, drink, and take my ease. And the Lord said, you're foolish because your soul's going to be required of you on this night. Live for him because everything in this world is going to go away. And next week, we're going to look at the parable of the talents and the things that have been entrusted to you. Are you investing in the things of the kingdom? Are you investing those blessings 
and talents and gifts that have been given to you and the gospel that's been given to you? Are you investing in the kingdom or are you just living for the world? Turn to him, look to him because he loves you and in his presence is fullness of joy for you and you'll find true satisfaction and fulfillment. And one more thing, then we're going to come to the communion table. Great is the day when we make that our own. When we quit buying into the lies of the world of you just live for yourself and there may be satisfaction for a season, but you're going to end up being empty and you're going to end up being deceived and you're going to end up missing out on what the Lord has for you. You are here for such a time as this. And as we talk about these heavy things in the last days, we have a glorious future and the Lord wants to use you to be a good steward of what has been entrusted to you, the gospel and the truth of his word, to be light to others so they see the reality of Jesus Christ in you. They're not going to see perfection in any of us. But do they see something of the Lord in you? You have something that the world doesn't have in people of the world. And that is you have the Lord in your heart. So you love others. And you minister to them and serve them and be used of the Lord and live for him. And I'll tell you what, you're going to be blessed more than you know. And he's going to do exceedingly and abundantly more than you can ever think or hope because he wants to use you in the days in which we are in. We'll get more into that next time. As Father, we thank you that we're to be watching, we're to be waiting. We're to occupy till you come. And Lord, I do thank you for these reminders that are given to us. And I pray, Lord, if there's things going on in our lives that you've been dealing with us about, that we would give those things to you, turn away and turn to your ways. You've given everything that pertains to godliness in Christ Jesus to us. We're to hold every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ, but we do war with the flesh. Help us, Lord to come to you, to experience that abundant life that you have for us of satisfaction and fulfillment, of true joy and peace and wisdom. We don't have to be deceived by the darkness. You brought us out of the darkness into your marvelous light. Why would we want to go back to the darkness, the things of the world? But to walk with you, to have fellowship with you, in a fullness of joy. I pray if there's anyone here as we get ready to come to the communion table, which is for the believer, we welcome you to take of communion. It, it doesn't, it's not if you don't belong to the church or you're just visiting. If you're a believer, take a communion. But for you who may be here that you've never made a true commitment to Christ, maybe you're even listening online or on the radio later that Jesus came and died for you, that you might have forgiveness of sin and the hope of eternal life and, and relationship with the Father that only comes through him. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that is you just open your heart to him and humble yourself and realize you're a sinner in need of forgiveness like all of us. And that Jesus went to the cross and died for you because of his love for you. The invitation is to come. Call on the name of the Lord. 
And maybe you're here this morning and you've been so weighed down with life and maybe there's carnality and sin. You know the Lord's been dealing with you. The invitation this morning by Him is to come. Repent and turn to Him. Quit going in the direction you're going. It's going to lead to captivity and darkness and despair and defeat. He wants to free you. He wants you to experience that abundant life He has. For us to have true again purpose and fulfillment and he wants to empower you to be the men and women of God that he's called you to be come for you who have never come to Christ for salvation that you would pray that Jesus I come to you right now I ask that you forgive me of my sins I believe you died for me you rose again be my personal Lord and Savior and I do want to walk with you and know you all the days of my life. I thank you for this new beginning and bring me into the family of God. And for you who have been struggling with carnality and sin, to come and confess it to the Lord. He sees it anyway. Don't hide it from him. You can't hide from the Lord. To say, Lord, help me to live for you. Lord, help me to repent from that sin from those actions, those thoughts, what I'm watching, and to live for you because you've brought me out of the darkness into the marvelous light. I don't want to go back to the darkness. To be free, not in captivity to that sin. And Lord, as we come to the communion table here, that we would continue in worship and just awe and thanksgiving to you and what your son did in going to the cross. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.